As we get started today, I just want to say how much I am grateful for this church, and we're going to talk about prayer in just a little bit, um, but I appreciate your prayers. Our family had uh, to do a COVID test this week. Uh, my son, Michael, woke up one morning, he was sick, and obviously they don't want you to send your kids to school at this time if you're sick. Uh, I'm talking about this, it's easy to talk about because it came back negative, but uh, that being said, I'm very grateful for the prayers of the church as we had to deal with all of that this week. So I stopped at a local res restaurant for lunch this week and I immediately recognized the guy who was standing in line in front of me. He had done some work for me a while back and uh, we've seen each other multiple times out in the community and of course I greeted him the way I would anybody else and I said, hey, how are you doing? Well, oddly enough, he actually answered me honestly. Normally, we just give the normal, well, yeah, I'm fine. But instead, he shared with me about his dad, who had recently been diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. Of course, I offered to do whatever I could to help, and he just asked if I could pray for he and his father. I agreed to do so and even volunteered to do it right then and there. The employee behind the counter just sat quietly waiting for us to finish. As I reflected on that encounter, I was reminded of the fact that we are surrounded by people who desperately need someone to pray for them. We look at the people around us and we see almost a facade, a mask, literally <laughs> most of the time today, that suggests that everything is okay. But what we see on the outside is not always all that accurate. And what's on the inside is often incredibly ugly and painful. Let me suggest to you that the greatest thing that the church can do for one another and for the world outside of the church is to pray. The Christian church as a whole has become very good at programs and fellowship. We're good at the production that we call Sunday morning worship. We may even be, we may even see ourselves as a well-run business, but what we ought to be is a place that is centered on prayer. Charles Spurgeon, one of the great British theologians and preachers said this, the condition of the church may be very accurately gauged by its prayer meetings. So is the prayer meeting a graceometer, and from it we may judge of the amount of divine working among a people. If God be near a church, it must pray. And if he not be there, one of the first tokens of his absence will be a slothfulness in prayer. I know that I'm not even to the scripture yet. But as I read those words earlier this week, my mind went back to the heritage of this particular church. We have had some great prayer warriors over the years. At a funeral about a year ago, I was approached by one of our senior saints. He reflected on the fact that one of our great prayer warriors had died. In fact, this was near the end of a stretch where we had had Nine people over the age of 80 die within a 13-month period of time. And he asked me this. He said, who is going to replace the prayer warriors that we are losing? And I ask you today, will it be you? If not, 
then who will it be? In 1853, a Scottish devotional writer named Andrew Bonar recorded the following words. He said, God likes to see his people shut up to this, that there is no hope but in prayer. Herein lies the church's power against the world. So let me begin again, before we even get into the scripture this morning, let me begin here. There is no question that if we are to be a healthy church, then we must be a praying church. This must include corporate times of prayer like we just had a moment ago. But it also must include individual times of prayer. In fact, according to 1 Thessalonians 5.17, our prayer life is to be more than just simply a discipline, a ritual, or part of some church service. We are told to pray without ceasing. That means that right now, every one of us ought to be in a spirit of prayer while we're in this service. That means that when you're at home by yourself, you ought to be in a spirit of prayer. That means that when you're driving in your car or when you're waiting in the car line to pick up your kids or your grandkids, you ought to be in a spirit of prayer. Can you imagine how such prayer would change things for us as a church, as a community, and as a nation. Not only are we tapping into the power of God, but we are also choosing to focus on Christ rather than the junk that surrounds us so often. So a healthy church is a praying church. So I call on you to pray. But what should that prayer look like? And that's where we're gonna spend a lot of time in God's word here today. It's a question that the disciples asked of Jesus. We see his answer in what we commonly refer to as the Lord's Prayer. And in today's passage, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and 2, we see yet another model of how and why we ought to pray. It was not intentionally a teaching on prayer. As Paul recorded this, he is not setting out to tell people this is what you ought to do. Jesus has already done that. Instead, what it is is, this is revealing what Paul's practice of prayer looked like. Look at what it says, beginning in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 3. It says, We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. I'm going to stop there. We'll come back to the scripture in just a moment. Paul begins with a prayer of thanksgiving. In particular, he is expressing thanksgiving to God because of the people of Thessalonica. These are people that he loves. These are people whom he has invested in, and he celebrates what's going on inside of them. Now, we talked about that several weeks ago as we looked at 1 Thessalonians, the beginning of that, but this reference is unique because it addresses some of the characteristics, some of the things that would be considered worthy of thanksgiving. It's not just because I love you, but I'm excited because these are the things that are happening. So what is it about them that is worthy of thanksgiving? The first thing is that they are growing in their faith. Do you remember how last week we talked about the fact that God didn't call us in uh, Matthew 28, verse 18 to 20, what we call as the Great Commission? God didn't call us to go and make believers. 
but rather to go and make disciples. You remember how we talked about how God wasn't as interested in how many people started the race, but rather how many people finished the race? It would seem that there was a sense of spiritual maturity among the Thessalonian church. Yet it wasn't as if they had already reached perfection. They are growing more and more according to this particular passage. Contrast this with the way Paul addressed the Corinthian church. We just read a really positive, glowing, I thank God for you because you are growing and because of the way you're loving one another. But listen to how he greeted the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. What a contrast between the two. One is a glowing, man, this is fantastic. I thank the Lord for you guys because you're not just a little bit committed to this gospel. You're all in. You're growing. You're not satisfied with where you are. Yet in the Corinthian church, there appear to be many who have started the race. But now they're just along for the ride. If they cross the finish line, great. If they don't, eh, it's okay. I was talking with one of you this week who relayed the following story with me. They were whitewater rafting with some other folks, and as they approached a set of rapids, it was a very large set of rapids, everyone was instructed by their leader. I guess they had an, I've never, believe it or not, I've never been whitewater rafting. They had a professional that was with them, and he instructed them that when they got to a certain point, he would instruct them to row, and they needed to be ready. It was vitally important that everyone do their part, otherwise they could tip over. Well, as they approached the rapids, the professional in the boat gave the cue to start rowing. But as he gave the cue, the rafters on the left side of the boat were apparently distracted by something that they saw out to their left. And they're in awe, and the people on the right side are following instructions. And what happens is suddenly this boat turns sideways, and they hit the rapids sideways, causing the boat not to completely tip over, but they had two of the people in the boat actually flip out of the boat into the 47-degree waters. I fear that there are many in the church that are just along for the ride. We are sightseers instead of rowers. We're just along for the ride. We're enjoying the scenery. There are cool things for us to see along the way. And God is saying, it's time to get up and row. It's time to begin to press on. You've got to do your part along this journey. I fear that there are might be more Corinthians than there are Thessalonians in the church today. Well, here Paul is celebrating the fact that the Thessalonian church is doing more than just starting the race. They're not just along for the ride, but they are actually in it to win it. They're now growing in their faith. And how is this evident in the Thessalonian church? There may be other areas of evidence 
But the thing Paul mentions is their love for one another. Now, to be clear, it is likely that the primary application of this ought to be relating to those within the church. But I'll also add that you could also handle the way we love those outside the church as evidence to whether or not we truly are devoted to Christ. But it does begin with their love for those in the church. It shows up in many ways. First, they took care of one another, much like the early church did in Acts chapter 2. Acts 2 verse 44 and 45 says, All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. When you see your brother and your sister in need, you do something about it. They weren't content with looking and saying, well, you know, that's their problem. Actually, no, we're the body of Christ. And therefore, we ought to take care of one another. When we see a need, we ought to step up and do whatever it takes to help meet that need. Another part of this unconditional, this agape love, would no doubt have also included the fact that they likely did not agree on everything, but they could find common ground together in Christ. See, when you love each other, you don't have to agree on every single thing, but you can still love the individual in spite of the fact that you don't agree on every single thing. I was recently thinking about this in regard to the political divide in America. There have always been different opinions, but we were always able to find common ground, at least as Americans, but not today. Today, we're so polarized that you either agree with me on everything or you hate me. <laughs> There's no in-between. There is no sense of, well, but we're all in the same family. Let me suggest that family is a great word to describe what the church is supposed to be like. See, as family, I won't agree with everything that my brother says. I won't agree with everything my sister says. But as family, I can still love them, and they can still love me. As Christians, we ought to still be able to find common ground in Christ Jesus. You can like the red carpet. I can like the, red, the gray carpet. We can still be family. Just don't bring up tile flooring, that kind of thing. The point is, you can disagree with each other, but it doesn't mean it has to be a source of contention continually. There's one other aspect of their love increasing for one another amongst the church. And this comes from the same passage that I referenced earlier in Acts chapter 2. Verse 42, it talks about all the things that the early church was devoted to. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the breaking of bread and to fellowship. And the last thing that is mentioned on their list of devotions is devotion to prayer. Let me suggest that they likely prayed often for each other in the New Testament church. In a time of great persecution, with believers often being arrested, beaten, or even killed, it is likely that they often found themselves in prayer for their fellow believers. Let me challenge you for a moment with this. Take a moment right now and look around you. Identify at least five, six people. I challenge you to pray for those five or six people every day for the next week. 
We talk about prayer, but this is a very practical thing. You can pray for the people around you. It doesn't have to be sitting directly beside you. Pick out five or six people sitting that you see in this building today, and you choose to pray for them every day for the next week. You don't know what they're facing. Remember the facade, the masks that we wear sometimes? On the outside, everybody looks great, and we assume that everything's okay in their lives. The truth is, there's likely a lot of brokenness behind many of those masks. Pray for God's blessing, for his protection, for his deliverance, for his grace. Let that become a part of your daily routine. I'm challenging you to do that for this next week, but my hope is it'll go well beyond a week. That'll just become a part of your daily prayer life. I think I've already talked a little bit about the growing and the persevering faith that Paul was thankful for. It wasn't a one and done situation where they said their prayer, they entered the race and the race was suddenly over. That's not the way it works. Paul is thankful that they are growing more and more. But one other era of thanksgiving is in regard to God's justice. Look at our passage again, still in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Look beginning in verse 5. This is what it says. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. Let me just say before I get too deep into uh, what I see in this passage, this fits so well with what we talked about last week. There is a coming day of God's judgment. Seems to be a theme here in First and Second Thessalonians. Remember that the wide gate leads to destruction? The narrow gate leads to eternal life? Well, sometimes life can become burdensome, especially when you're on the narrow path. We have those who treat us poorly, and we want them to be held accountable for that. In the same way, we naturally want to be treated well. What's God going to do about it when things don't happen the way we think it should? There's a danger for us being the ones who determine who gets God's judgment. You see, a part of this is because we don't see the whole picture, yet God does see the whole picture. There are individuals who treat us poorly. We have no idea the brokenness behind the way they treat us. So often we look at individuals and we think, well, they're just mean and nasty people, but How did they get to that point? Often there's been such broken, it's not excusing the meanness and the ugliness that comes at us from society, from those who are outside of Christ. And unfortunately, sometimes even from those who have been in Christ. It doesn't excuse it. God looks and he sees the whole picture and sometimes the whole picture is not the same 
is what we see when we see that little tiny glimpse. When God judges, we can be assured that his judgment will be right. He will hold accountable those who have wronged you, those who have not obeyed the gospel of Christ. And he will reward those who have been faithful. I've often said that I'm glad that I don't get to be the one who determines who gets into heaven and who goes to hell. And that's because God is much wiser than I am. And for that, I am very, very thankful. So we need to take time and we need to thank God for his grace, for his righteousness, for his judgment, and for his incredible wisdom. I'll tell you, this is one of the uglier parts of scripture for those who are not in him. Last week, again, we talked about the wide path that leads to destruction. Do you think that that's the path that God would choose for any of his creation, any of his children? This is an incredibly ugly path, but it's not what God would choose for any of humanity. Unfortunately, our choices, he gives us free will and it's on us. And when it comes down to it, the judgment of God will be right. Of course, after Paul prays a prayer of thanksgiving, he then prays for some specific needs of other people. Look at verses 11 and 12 of our passage. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. And you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. The first petition that he makes is for spiritual maturity. That God would make you worthy of his calling. Now, I got to admit, this is a very interesting phrase, only because I wonder if we ever could be truly deemed worthy of his calling. It's clear that at the moment that Christ reached into our lives, there was no sense of worthiness. I wasn't good enough, and therefore God reached out to me. I was unworthy. Instead, he saw my filthiness, and he invited me to be cleansed, to be made new. The reference to God making you worthy of his calling is not so much about where you started. Again, God is far less concerned with how many people start the race as opposed to how many finish the race. This is not a reflection of where you started, but where you finished. It's about making sure that you make good use of the grace that you have already been given. So let me say to you today that I am praying for you, that God would make you as the body of Christ worthy of his calling that you would make good use of the grace which you have received. Don't just be content with knowing that you received it. It's a great thing that you received it, but what are you going to do with it now? I pray that God would be honored in you. Well, Paul continues to pray, but this time he's simply looking for God's blessing. 
He prays, and we already read this, but he prays that by his power, he may bring to fruition, bring into being, he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. Did you know that it's okay to pray for God's blessing? I think sometimes we almost perceive this as an act of selfishness. It's not selfishness to desire good things. But we must continually keep in perspective the need for us to be spiritually mature, worthy of God's calling, because that's where he began. We must continually keep in perspective the need for us to be spiritually mature as we receive those blessings. Otherwise, even your blessings can turn into stumbling blocks in your spiritual walk. If God were to grant you everything that you ever wanted, and you became a billionaire, and you had every friend that you wanted, and you no longer needed God, you have lost If God gave you everything, but you lost that worthiness of the calling, you were not spiritually mature, you were not hungering for Christ anymore, then you have lost. So I pray for God's blessing upon you and your family this week. But I pray that God would bless you in accordance with your spiritual life. If those blessings will become a stumbling block, I know I'm your pastor, I'm supposed to pray for your blessing, but if those things are going to become a stumbling block to you, I would rather you not receive it. I ask God to refrain from giving those gifts to you. But again, God knows better than what we do. So what I really pray for is for God's blessing in accordance with his wisdom. The natural byproduct of this is that these blessings and your faithfulness in the midst of these blessings can become God's tool to bring glory to his name. It is not about people being enamored with you or who you are, but rather with God and who he is. Everything you have and are is because of God. So make sure that he gets the credit, he gets the glory. My prayer for you is that God's name will be glorified as he blesses you. There's one more thing that we see in Paul's prayer, and we'll have to move a little bit further into this chapter 2 for just a moment. You can go ahead and flip there. You should know that as Paul recorded this letter, there was no breakdown between chapters and verses. This would have been one continuous letter. So what we read in chapter 2 actually fits with chapter 1. Chapter numbers and verses were added later just to help us to be able to find specific verses and to be able to memorize more easily. So as we look at chapter 2, we see that Paul is still very much concerned with the Thessalonian church. He's not necessarily praying at this point, but he's specifically concerned regarding the need for clarity and not confusion. It reveals his heart. This is that continual spirit of prayer that I mentioned earlier from 1 Thessalonians 5.17. It reveals his heart. He is constantly burdened by the needs that are present. And as he's addressing this in his heart, he is still praying, God, I need your help 
these people need your help. Look at it beginning in verse 1. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers and sisters, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by the teaching allegedly from us, whether by a prophecy or by word of mouth or by letter, asserting that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. There is no doubt that this is a fragile church. We're talking about the Thessalonian church. When I say fragile, I'm not talking about the fact that they had weak-minded people. In fact, the Apostle Paul has already celebrated the fact that they are spiritually mature, they are growing, they are hungry for the Lord, they are seeking him with everything that they have. In many ways, it was a very strong church. As we compared the Corinthian church, we would have looked at it and said, you know, that's probably a pretty weak church because they're infants and they still need milk and not solid food because they're not ready for it. Yet, often we think of the Corinthian church probably because of all the letters that Paul wrote to them as being relatively healthy. But the truth is, they're both fragile. What makes them so fragile is they're new. Paul was a missionary to the Thessalonian church. As he went to Thessalonica, there was no church that was in place there. When he left, there was. And by the time the second letter comes, which now we're in 2 Thessalonians, it's probably been at least a couple years. But that's still really, really new. They're young. And there's the potential that they might be led astray. And Paul knows that. Many voices, many people who are saying this and another one saying this and another one saying this over here and one person thinks that this is what happened and Paul's not there to refute anything. It would appear that there was some kind of confusion that was present. Remember we talked uh, in 1 Thessalonians that since Paul left, he's actually sent Timothy to be with them and Timothy has come back with a report. So he's not speaking blindly. These are things that well, they're, they're actually happening. These are the things that are real in that church. And it would appear that there was some type of confusion that was occurring within the church. Apparently, there were those who were sowing seeds of doubt within the church, claiming that Christ had already come back. Remember that we talked two weeks ago about the day and the hour of the Lord's return being unknown. This is something that the church was looking for already. Apparently, the Thessalonian church was being told that you've already missed the second coming of Christ. By the way, 2,000 years later, we are still awaiting the second coming of Christ. But they didn't know. Imagine your leader, the Apostle Paul, is not there to set the record straight. And you've got people who maybe they're even respected within the church. Maybe there are people that are kind of coming from other places and say, oh, no, that's not even real. We know that the Lord's already come back. Imagine what that could do to your faith. It's not hard to imagine how devastating this would have been. I would imagine that if they were pursuing Christ, awaiting for his return, which we know that that's what they were, and they finally hear that he's already come and gone, and you've been left. 
that there might be a tendency to simply give up on their faith. Now do you understand why Paul is so passionate as he addresses them? Remember, he loves them. He's excited about the progress that's being made, the hunger that's there, the fact that they're not satisfied with where they are. But it would break his heart if the church stopped doing what they were supposed to be doing. So Paul says to them, don't give up. It's not true. He goes on to remind them that the man of lawlessness is still at work. I'm not going to read the entirety of the rest of uh, chapter 2. I think we're going to go through verse 12. It talks about the man of lawlessness still being at work. Let me summarize that very easily. That's Satan. And as long as we live in this fallen world, until the day that Christ chooses to return and put an end to all of the ugliness of sin around us, the reality is that Satan will be present and he will be doing his work. What does he do? He comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Often that happens through manipulation and things exactly like this, causing confusion where there was confidence and there was hunger and there was passion. See, one of the things that I get worried about here in the Thessalonian church and maybe even in the church today, sometimes we have replaced that passion. We, we haven't walked away from our faith, but we have replaced that passion and that hunger, that fervency for lukewarm, passive faith in Christ. May that never happen in this church. We do it sometimes because we wonder, does, does this really even matter? I don't know, am I the only person that's ever thought that way? You know, thing, things go on and there's brokenness in your world and you pray that God would do something and he doesn't do it the way you asked. Well, did my prayer even make a difference? Sometimes what can happen is that hunger can just kind of turn into... Blah. May that never happen. The lawless one, Satan himself, will continue to work to sow seeds of doubt and confusion within the body of Christ. But I want you to know that God is at work too. Yes, Satan will come and he will try to confuse, he will try to discourage, he will try to keep us from pursuing Christ with everything that we have, but God is at work too. He continues to answer prayers. He continues to meet needs. He, continue to, he continues to provide in the midst of incredible brokenness. We've talked about 2020 a lot because this has been a really crazy year for us. But do you realize how faithful God has been to us through all of this? None of that has changed. I know sometimes we get caught up at looking at all of the junk and it's easy to see the things that are being thrown at us because the lawless one continues to work. And as we get by one, there's another thing being thrown at us. And sometimes we can get focused on those things. Maybe what we really need to do is to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, instead of all the junk that's going on around us. 
God is just as much at work, if not even more so, than the lawless one. So do not be afraid. I pray for you today. I pray for you this week that you will not become discouraged. I pray that in spite of the difficulty that we face, that we will be reminded of God's faithfulness. As Satan continues to sow seeds of doubt, may we be reminded of God's continued work. And may we continually look forward to the day of Christ's return, because it will happen. The way I see it, I challenge you at the beginning here today to identify five or six people that you would pray for this week. Just by looking at first and second Thessalonians, first and second chapter of second Thessalonians. You have a great model of how to pray for one another this week. Start with thanksgiving. Thank the Lord for the work that he's done, for what he continues to do in the people around you. Continue by praying that God would bless, that he would provide, that he would give grace but in accordance with his will. Pray for his justice to be served. Not that we would get even with the people around us, but that God's justice would be served. I'm going to tell you, I do pray for God's justice, but there's a part of me, I'd rather have his grace. Because even the people who have wronged me, they need his grace. Pray for the people that are around you, that they will be faithful and not give up. I want to pray with you this morning. This is my prayer for you today. Father, as we come before you, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the people who choose to make this their family. I thank you for the way that you're working in their lives. Thank you for those who have surrendered their lives to you already. And they're not just interested in being in the race, but they want to win the race. They want to finish well. Lord, I pray right now that you would enable them to do so. Thank you for the way their love is being displayed every single day for one another and even for the people outside the church. Lord, I pray that you would continue to bless them, help them to become the church that they need to be, to become the individuals that they need to be that will make up the church. Lord, I thank you that your justice is always right. That you see things much more clearly than we do. Lord, I pray that each of us would be ready for the day of judgment. I pray for each individual who is here, that if they, not, if they are not ready today, that you would begin to transform their hearts right now so that this would not be a day that we have to fear. Father, I pray for your blessing upon this church. I pray that each individual in this room, each individual who is watching online today would know the blessing of God. I pray that you would give them the desires of their heart, but Lord, I pray that you would give us the desires of our hearts in accordance with your wisdom. Not my will, but your will be done. Lord, if the blessings that we seek are to become a stumbling block to us, Lord, I ask that you would re refrain them from us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to use whatever blessings we receive 
so that it would bring glory and honor to your name. Finally, Lord, I pray that you would help us as we look forward to the day of your return. We know that the lawless one would love to sow seeds of doubt and confusion among your people. But I pray right now that you would give us clarity and hope and strength. Allow your spirit to be the voice that speaks to our hearts and drown out the voice of the lawless one. May we know you and your promise better than anything else. Father, I pray for this group of people that you would be honored in the way we live and the hope that we have. And may your name be lifted up. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I want you to notice that today there was no call for repentance, no invitation for you to respond to God's grace, but I want you to know that God's grace is available to you and it is always there. But what I will tell you is that we as the body of Christ, if we are praying for each other, his name, if we continually do that, I do believe that his name will be glorified in the way we live. Thank you for being with us and go in peace today.